at home. So it's nice to have all of the young people join us here from the Sabbath school. They're well laden down, I've noticed as well. Obviously, this might be the last uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday school before Christmas, I suspect. So I think uh, there might be a distraction in those bags, so we'll try and keep those all, all away for the moment. Neville didn't announce that the preacher on Wednesday night. I'm assuming it must be Neville, <laughs> yes, even though he didn't mention it. Just in case you're in doubt, it must be him, and I'm sure he'll have plenty to say, and it will be of benefit to you all. Now, we're going to turn for our text today, uh, not to the psalm, but rather to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read just two verses from this chapter, and this will form the text on our subject today. So, the first epistle to Peter, by Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's the verses 6 and 7, and we read those together. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, <clears throat> might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's the two verses we want to consider today, and really the subject I want us to think about today is, why do Christians suffer? Surely a question we've all posed, and that's a question we're going to seek to answer today with God's help. And let's bow in prayer now and ask for the Lord's help as we consider this subject. <clears throat> our Father, we thank You for Your Word. It brings great comfort to our hearts. We thank You that we can open it together and read it together, and now as we meditate upon it, we pray that You will help us in our minds to concentrate on what is said. And Lord, to this end, I pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that the words that I might speak might be Spirit-filled words. Lord, we pray also for those who hear, uh, that their ears might be unstopped to the truth of Your Word, and that they might respond in their hearts to those things that are said. Bring comfort to Your people today. Challenge the lost, uh, that they too might taste and see that the Lord is good. And for those who are maybe weighed down with cares and burdens, or those who are backslidden, we pray, Father, that this might be the day when they might be won and wooed back to the Savior's side, and that they might find comfort and rest for their souls. So bless us together as we meditate upon Your Word, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I lead the Bible class in my own church in Lisburn, and this past while, for several months actually, we've been studying the life of Simon Peter. Uh, we've plotted his progression through uh, the Gospels from that impulsive, rash man that he was at the beginning, Simon, <clears throat> and we've seen how he was discipled by the Lord Jesus over those three and a half years while Christ ministered before His disciples here on earth. He made many mistakes, and we learn from His mistakes and His blunders. And I suppose the greatest of all those mistakes or blunders must have been that denial uh, in the high priest's house, a denial with oaths and cursings when he claimed that he didn't know this man, Jesus. 
but the master restored him, and there's great comfort in that for us, and recommissioned him and told him, Peter, go and feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then as we've moved through in our Bible class into the book of Acts, we have seen how this man now filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Spirit, becomes a, a fearless and a wonderful preacher of God's Word. He has remarkable courage and faith, and as he proclaims the message of the gospel, he doesn't fear the Jews. He doesn't fear what they might do to him. He's thrown in prison at least twice, maybe more, and, uh, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ had predicted to him what manner of death he would die, that he would die a martyr's death, and still Peter, filled with the Spirit, goes and preaches the remarkable truth of God's Word. And as we follow him now into the epistles, uh, we have his own words. What's his own testimony? What does he say about the life that he has lived, about the suffering that he has had to endure? Uh, the disciple, Simon, becomes the preacher, Peter, in the book of Acts. And then now in these epistles, we have the teacher, Peter, as his life progresses. And this first epistle, many of you will know, is an epistle that's all about suffering. It's all about hardship. It's all about pain. It's all about difficulty in this life. Uh, and while the theme keeps recurring, we've taken as our text those two verses from chapter 1. I'll read them once more. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Suffering is a mystery to many people. It raises questions, does it not? Especially amongst those who don't believe in God. We hear of trouble, we read of trouble, we see it on our television screens each day, and, and, and we live in a world that's full of suffering. And people ask, if, if God is a God of love, why? How does He allow such suffering, such indiscriminate suffering in this world? You've heard that, I'm sure. I've heard it too. Books have been written. After 9-11, there was books written, where was God on 9-11? Why did God allow this to happen? And sometimes we fall into that trap of thinking too, why does suffering occur? And we recognize that suffering is inescapable in this life. We see it, don't we? And we have to endure it often. Why? Well, I guess the simple answer to the question posed is because of sin. There was no suffering, no sorrow, no pain, no trouble, no death until Adam sinned there in the Garden of Eden. And the punishment for that sin was death, spiritual death. At that moment, Adam and Eve died spiritually. Uh, and the curse upon them was that their bodies too would die and did die. And all of creation was cursed, and we have thorns and briars. Uh, and, and Paul writes for us in, in Romans that all of creation groaneth 
under this curse that has come upon all man and upon creation. Uh, and the creation groaneth along with us, awaiting that day when our redemption will be made complete. Of course, that redemption was purchased for us on Calvary's tree. We've thought about that in our singing. We've thought of the man of Calvary who died for us there on Calvary's cross, who shed his blood not for his own sins, for he had none, but shed his blood rather uh, to be a ransom for our sins, uh, a life of immeasurable worth, for he was the God-man given there for the purchasing of our redemption. But that redemption remains incomplete. We live in bodies that suffer. We live in bodies that decay. We live in bodies, if Christ does not return, that will die and one day go to the grave. So we too know about suffering in our bodies. But praise God, uh, we have a Savior who has given us a full and a free pardon and a full salvation, and one day will present us faultless in new bodies, in renewed bodies before His Father. To the enlightened Christian, suffering is not so much a mystery. Rather, we look upon it as a ministry, for it can indeed be a ministry to us to teach us many things. I have just three simple thoughts as we come to God's Word today and will help us in our thoughts about why Christians suffer. The first point is this, trials or suffering's pain is limited. Now, experience tells us that trials come, doesn't it? Yet, some Christians claim that they have reached that point of maturity in their lives when trouble, when issues, when temptations, when trials are all gone, and they even have the audacity to say that they no longer sin. We don't believe them. We shouldn't believe them. No man can reach that point of sinless perfection in this life. No, no, that's the reserve of the life that is to come. So, if someone tells you they're beyond sin, that they're cleansed and free from sin, they're not telling you the truth, and that in itself is a sin. Do you notice the words that Peter uses in our text today, uh, words that he uses to describe these trials, this temptation that we face? He uses the word heaviness. He uses the word temptation or trial and trial in our text. And we see that these trials come we know that they come, and we read of them throughout the Bible, do we not? The patriarch Job, one of the oldest men in our Bible, he lived before Moses. He lived before the Ten Commandments. He lived way, way out there as one of the patriarchs back in Abram's time. And Job writes in Job 5 verse 7, we read that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job knew this truth. Job 14.1, he tells us, man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of sorrow. Now, we recognize that trouble comes upon all men. We see that in this world in which we live. Uh, but for the believer, there's added trouble in this life. Do you get that? Are we shocked to think about that? We read from Psalm 34 
We sang from Psalm 34, and what did we read there? We read, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You see, the righteous people, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have espoused God as their Savior, suffer more in this world than do those who don't believe in God. Can I prove it from other Scriptures? Well, I think I can. The Beatitudes, uh, we read about them in in Matthew chapter 5, all those blessed statements. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, the words of our Savior, He writes and, and speaks, "'Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And what are we to do? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There are persecutions, there are afflictions which come upon the child of God in this life that the wicked do not face. Uh, other verses in the New Testament. Again, Christ, uh, we read of His high priestly prayer in… I've just lost my spot. High priestly prayer in in John uh, chapter 15, and there we read uh, verses 18 and 19 of John 15, "'If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you.'" Or John 16, 33, in the world he shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Uh, So, what I've tried to prove to you here is that there are troubles and trials for all men in this world, but there are troubles and trials especially that come the way of believers. Now, back with our text, Peter notes this in his epistle, does he not? He begins his epistle, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers, strangers and pilgrims. We who belong to Christ are strangers in this world. And why does the world hate us? Well, Peter tells us in chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, and there we read, wherein they think it strange, the world thinks it strange, that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, and they speak evil of you. You see, if we don't fit in with the world that's out there, if we don't espouse the values of this world, if we don't become woke in our thinking, then we're despised, we're rejected, we're told that we're old-fashioned, we're dinosaurs, we're out of touch, we're bigoted, we're intolerant. Now they seek to drag some of us before the courts and accuse us of hate crimes. You see, except you run with the world, you will be different to the world, and we are different to the world, and we're strangers and pilgrims. We don't belong to this world. We belong to a heavenly kingdom, and this world is not our home. But I want us to see that while trials come, and we've seen that already. We also see in our text that trials go. Three little words there in our text back in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. Did you notice them? 
Verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. For a season? Did you see that? Our trials come, but they also go. They don't last forever. They are temporary for the most part. Now, in the midst of our trials, we often think, will this ever pass? Do you remember the last time you had a flu? I'll speak from a medical knowledge here today. And in the midst of that flu, now a proper flu I'm talking about, not a cold, not a man flu, proper flu where you were in bed, laid up, and you thought, I'm never going to get over this. Uh, and you get to the point, well, will I ever feel better? Uh, and then you maybe think, I'm going to die. Uh, and then maybe after that you think, actually, I wish I could die. I feel so miserable. But it passes. You're all here. You're all present, even though you've had those flus in the past. Do you get my point? Sometimes in the midst of our trials and our troubles, we think it'll never end. This is never going to stop. And yet, the promise of God's Word is, it's for a season. It will pass. Now, Paul uses similar language. And I suppose between Peter and Paul, we have the most of our New Testament Scriptures. And this is a passage I do want you to turn up with me, please, because we're going to refer to this a few times this morning. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. What does Paul say about our trials? Well, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Notice how he describes them. He says, for our light affliction. And that's not how you and I see our trials and our afflictions and our troubles, is it? We don't see them as being light and then it reads, which is but for a moment. There we have it, the same thought from Paul. Our trials are but for a moment. With Peter, he describes them as being for a season. What comfort we have in these words. Christian, whatever trouble you find yourself in today, and I don't know what troubles face members of this congregation or maybe with you within your life, but be reassured that it's divinely limited. Notice the word. Uh, well, trials come, trials go. Uh, trials can be varied as well, aren't they? They're different for each person. Uh, did you notice back on our text the word manifold? It speaks about manifold. Verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, the word manifold there means multicolored or variegated. You think of a variegated bush. Uh, it has different colors within it, different shades of green. Well, our temptations, our trials are multicolored. They're varied. They're variegated. They differ from person to person. Uh, now, many of us speak of Monday as being blue, don't we? Uh, school kids going back after the weekend into school. Oh, it's a blue day. <laughs> don't want to go to school. Don't want to get up this early. Or maybe those of us who are on employment think after the break of the weekend, hmm, Monday morning comes and it certainly feels very blue. I've heard of people talk about Grey Tuesday. I'm not, not quite sure what that means. Maybe it's just an extension of a uh, an annoying Monday uh, that we get into a gray Tuesday. Well, let me tell you about my work. We have black Wednesdays at my work. Now, I work in a health center, and we have the luxury of a half day on a Wednesday. 
the place closes down. But one of us has to cover for medical emergencies on a Wednesday afternoon. In my case, that's every 10th Wednesday. Now, when you're used to having your Wednesday afternoon off and enjoying the freedom of doing all those other things that you need to do during the week, when that Wednesday comes around, the one on 10, it's black. So we describe it as a black Wednesday in my work. But what I'm pointing out to you here is that while we describe colors for days and, and there's different sentiments and different trials and struggles that we face, uh, then with our trials also there, there is color. Uh, the trials that come your way are very different to the trials that I might face. Uh, so our trials are described here by Peter as being manifold. Uh, and maybe the troubles that you face, I will never face. And likewise, the troubles I face, you will never face. The word manifold appears another time in 1 Peter. It's over in 1 Peter chapter 4. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. If you want to turn to that verse, where we read, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold. There's the word again, grace of God. Isn't that comforting? Manifold trials, manifold temptations are met by manifold grace. And that's the wonderful thing about our God. While the trials that are sent and come our way are varied and multicolored, the grace that He supplies that comes our way in our need is also manifold. It's varied and multicolored. So trials come, trials go, uh, trials can vary. Uh, trials can also be fierce. Did you see verse 7 in our text? That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Uh, these people to whom Peter was writing, uh, these people in, in Asia were about to face great persecution. This is towards the end of Peter's life. He would be martyred. The emperor Nero would burn Christians in Rome because he blamed them for the great fire of Rome. And he would set a wave of persecution that would pass throughout all of the provinces in uh, his reign. And these Christians were about to face a very fiery trial for their faith. And so Peter is warning them here in these verses uh, that, yes, it will come, and you'll be tried as if by fire, but your faith need not perish. Perhaps some of you have been called to face trials that seem fiery, that seem worse than those that come to other people. Uh, some for whom the season or the moment of your trial of your faith seems to last a whole lifetime. Some of you may be afflicted by ill health, some of you with a family burden that you've carried for all of these years. Some of you with hurts that you just can't get rid of. And so you've been called to face that special suffering in your life. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God can supply special grace even to those who are especially hurt. The picture here of the trial of fire is of the goldsmith at his work. He takes the gold ore, uh, and he sees glimmers of gold within it, uh, and he puts it into the crucible, and it's heated 
to burn off the dross and to get rid of all the impurities. And, and he keeps repeating the process until that time when he can see the glistening gold shine in his face. Now, the Master, in placing us upon, upon the crucible or in the crucible, knows just how much heat we can face. He has his hand, if you like, on the thermometer. He knows just how long we can face these trials. He has an eye to the clock, and the trials that you face will never be more than you can bear, will never be hotter than you can face, will never be longer lasting than you are able to bear. Paul, uh, we've talked of him already, was called to a special life of suffering, was he not? Uh, Ananias, when he was sent to uh, meet Paul after his conversion, he was nervous about this thought. He thought, well, surely this is the man who persecuted the church. And, and in Acts 9, 15, and, and 16, we read these words, But the Lord said unto Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show how great things he, that is Paul, must suffer for my name's sake. There, right at the start of this great apostle's ministry, Christ's word to Ananias is that this man must suffer great things for my sake. Now, that's where we see the purpose. Uh, we need to see the purpose in our suffering. We've pointed out to you that trials come, trials go, trials are varied, uh, trials uh, can be fierce, uh, but uh, we need to then see, is, is there purpose to all of this suffering in our lives? That's what we want to get to as the meat of our message today. And that brings me to my next point. Uh, trials, pain is limited. Uh, now we see that trials' purposes are listed, listed for us in the Word of God. What is the purpose of trials in the believer's life? Believers here today will believe with me the truth of Romans 8 and 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. We believe it, don't we? We accept it. We know it. Yet, there are times that even we as believers question, why? Why do I have to suffer this pain, this anguish, this trouble in my life? There's another three words in our text which I think help us as we consider this thought. Why do Christians suffer? Uh, look back at verse 6 with me, 1 Peter 1, verse 6 once more. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, Peter doesn't write, if by chance. He writes, if need be. That suggests, does it not, that our trials are necessary, that they are sent for some purpose in our lives, a purpose that is to make us more refined, more pure, more like this precious gold described in verse 7. Now, I want to list some of these precious things in God's Word, these precious purposes that God has. Uh, for our purification, for our sanctification, reasons that He gives uh, for our faith 
being tested. And the first one I want you to notice is that trials may be sent to prove the reality of our faith. The word temptation in our text really means trial, and we read of manifold temptations. And that same word occurs way back in the beginning of our Bible in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. The story is of Abraham there, and we read of Abraham, and it came to pass, Genesis 22 verse 1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. Now, we know the story. I don't need to recount it in great detail. Abraham was having his faith tempted or tried here in Genesis 21 to prove if it was real. Uh, Abram believed God. Uh, Abram had received a son uh, miraculously. Isaac was born miraculously because he and his wife were too old to have children naturally. naturally. So, supernaturally, they conceived and, and had this son, Isaac, and God had promised that He would raise a great nation through this son, Isaac. Would Abram's faith hold out when God then commanded Abraham, when God tempted Abraham to sacrifice his son there on Mount Moriah? And what great faith he had. His faith was indeed proved because he was prepared and ready to sacrifice his son, believing that God who had given him a son miraculously was also able to miraculously raise him up again from the dead. I doubt if our faith has ever been tested like that or will ever be tested like that. When trouble strikes, doubts arise very often. Uh, tragedy comes, but we need to remain firm in our faith. Do we still trust God? Do we still prove our faith when it is tried? Uh, no wonder Abram is called the father of the faithful in our Bibles. Now, Job said in the midst of his trials, and again to prove his faith, Job thirteen fifteen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's faith in action. That's faith in God. No matter what happens to me in my life, Job was saying, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to waver from this faith that I have in my God. So, our trials come to prove our faith, to prove that it's genuine. Our trials come also uh, to strengthen our faith. We confess often that our faith is weak, uh, don't we? The disciples knew all about that in their journey through life. Uh, I'll just mention some of these verses for time's sake, but in Mark 4 verse 40, we, we read of the disciples, uh, they were fearful in the midst of the storm. Christ was asleep in the vessel in the boat, uh, and they didn't waken up, and, and they thought, Master, wake up. Do you care not that we perish in this storm? And, and Christ arises and rebukes them and rebukes the sea and says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And if the disciples had no faith, later on we read of them, Matthew 16, verse 18, having little faith. There was a Canaanite woman that Christ met on His journeyings, Matthew 15, 28, and it's said of her that she had great faith. Stephen, a deacon in the early church and the first Christian martyr, 
was acknowledged, Acts 6 and 5, of being full of faith. And Abraham, we've talked about him already, is described by Paul in Romans 7 verse 20 as being strong in faith. I wonder how our faith measures up. None? No faith? Little faith? Is it great faith? Are you full of faith? Are you strong in faith? There's a progression here for us as Christians, and it's only by the trial of our faith that indeed it is strengthened, and we can be those who are known to be strong in faith. Trials can also be sent. Another purpose listed here for us. Trials can also be sent to discipline us, to correct us when we make mistakes, when we go astray. Hebrews 12, and I'll read a few verses to you from Hebrews chapter 12. This is all about the chastisement of the Lord upon His people. Uh, verse 6, 7, and, and 11. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And verse 11, Now the chastening, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Uh, the fruit of righteousness can be promoted in our lives as we are disciplined for our mistakes, and so our faith can grow. Trials, what else can trials do in our lives? What other accomplishment is there for these trials? Well, they come often to humble us. Pride is a sin that God hates. Uh, it was pride, do you remember, that caused Lucifer, the devil, to fall from heaven? He wanted to be God. He wanted to be as good as God. And the pride of his heart, he fell from God's presence and was banished uh, to everlasting fire, or will one day be banished to everlasting fire. Uh, Paul could have been proud of all that was revealed to him. He writes to the Corinthians. Those Corinthians people were, were very educated, very learned, very proper, and they were very proud of their background, their culture, their education, and they were proud of the gifts that they had received from the Spirit as they had come into fellowship with those in the New Testament church. And Paul warns them against pride. He says, if anybody's got a chance to boast, actually, I've got more chance to boast, for I was an apostle. You're not apostles, he writes to them in 2 Corinthians 12. And he also points out that, that I have been blessed beyond measure in that I was caught up into the third heaven, and I received revelations that I cannot even speak about. So if anyone has reason to be proud, I could be proud. And then what do we read? in uh, verse 7. So, 2 Corinthians uh, we're looking at here, and in verse 12, and it's verse 7, "'Lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations that were given unto me, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul was sent trials. Paul was sent this thorn in his flesh to humble him, 
to keep him from thinking too high of himself. I'm just listing out some of the many purposes that God has in, in sending trials and troubles our way. A few more to go. Uh, trials are sent also to purify us. We had that in our text, did we not? Back there in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, we are tried with fire uh, so that the gold that God has, our faith, might be made pure. Uh, we are refined. Uh, we're brought more and more into the mold uh, and the conformity of Christ, our great high priest. The refiner, uh, the goldsmith, heats the gold more and more and burns off that dross, uh, and I'm told he does it to the point where he is able to see his own reflection in the liquid metal. Now, there's a lovely thought. Our God puts us in the refiner's fire uh, and turns up the heat to burn off the dross and the impurities in our lives so that we might then appear to Him as a reflection of our glorious Savior. When God can see in us Christ, then we have become pure in spirit. Uh, we're tried, we're purified, we're refined, we're conformed, we're fashioned uh, into the image of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The dross in our lives needs to be done away with, to be burnt up, and our faith and our witness purified so that others looking upon us might see our heavenly Father and glorify Him. Two more things just to list here in these, uh, these purposes that God might have uh, in sending trials our way. Uh, trials are sent to qualify us uh, in helping others. 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, so we're back with 2 Corinthians again, chapter 1 this time. And uh, this is a lovely passage, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. We read there that, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, all of our trials, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. Simply put, we're comforted, and we're comforted in ways that enables us, that qualifies us then to be able to comfort those who are in great need. So, if you've been through great trial in your life, maybe God has purposed that for you so that in as much as you've been comforted by Him, you are able to draw alongside those who are in great trouble. My wife's family lost a son uh, tragically, in a, in a motorbike accident many, many years ago now. He was just 19. Uh, and I saw the comfort that God gave to them in such a time of, of great grief and need in their family. And I meet people still around our churches who speak of David and Mrs. Heron coming to visit them, maybe when they faced similar trouble or trial in their lives. You see, being comforted by God they were able to draw alongside those who needed that comfort also. And finally, in this list of, of trials and their purposes that I want you to think about, I want you to see, and this applies to all, that our experience, we experience trials to prove to us the sufficiency of God's grace, don't we? Uh, of course, this applies to all that we've said already, all of the lists. We're debtors to God's mercy, and we rely on His grace 
His grace is always sufficient for our need, never too little, never too late. Now, many of the verses we've quoted to you today, and I've quoted a lot, so I appreciate, uh, had comfort of God's grace applied to them. In the psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34, 19, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. There's his grace. In this world, uh, ye shall have tribulation, Christ says in John's gospel, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's God's grace. Paul's experience of the thorn in the flesh that we've spoken about already uh, wouldn't be complete if, if I didn't tell you what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. For there we read of Paul and uh, that uh, the, Paul had sought the Lord that this trial might be taken away from him, that this thorn in the flesh, verse 8, uh, for this thing I sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And Christ said to him, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, God's strength, is made perfect in weakness, in our weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that God supplies grace, abundant grace, grace that meets every one of our needs. So, if we've looked at trials, uh, that they come and go, and we've seen those in our lives. We have seen also that trials uh, are listed and how their purpose in our lives can be listed. Uh, finally, and to finish and very briefly, trials uh, can be lightened. Trials' path can be lightened. As we traverse this journey through life, uh, as we go through our lives, what, what guidance can we give you as to how we are to face our trials? Well, I think we had it in our text, did we not? Uh, we're to keep looking to Christ. Back with our text, we didn't read verse 8. Let me read it to you just now. Uh, so, our faith is tried uh, as gold in a fire, uh, and then we are looking for that appearing of Jesus Christ. We're looking for His return. We're looking to Christ. We're looking for Christ. And see what it says of Him in verse 8, "'Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see Him not, yet believing.'" ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Friend, take your eyes off this passing world. Uh, take your eyes off those things which will disappoint in this world, and have your eyes fixed upon Christ. He alone is the author, the beginner, and the finisher of our faith. He has promised to take us and present us before His Father faultless at the last day. Why do we worry? Why do we fret in the midst of our trials when we can look to Christ, the one who is able to help us through all of these troubles? And the second thing I'll suggest to you, and this is Paul's suggestion, and that's from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. Once more, I asked you to look that up earlier, because uh, Paul also writes to us about keeping eternity in view. Second uh, Corinthians 4, and I'm finished with this. Second Corinthians 4, verse 17, we've read part, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While, there's the condition. He says, while, while we look not for the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How do we face our trials? How do we get proven in our trials? Well, we keep 
our path is lightened by this look toward Christ and this eternal view that keeps us looking into the heavens. But what if you're not a believer here today? I've spoken about the trials that come the way of the Christian, but trials come your way also. Granted, we have pointed out that the trials may not be as difficult as the trials that Christians face, but then you have no comfort in your trials. We have comfort in our trials. We have a God of grace who supplies the needed grace in the midst of our trial, but you have no such comfort. You will be left alone in your trouble and in your distress, and when eternity comes, which we look for, you will have an eternity of lostness, of no respite, no hope. You'll be eternally damned and abandoned by God. I pray that you'll respond to the gospel message. Come here at preach tonight, but respond even this morning to the gospel. Come and receive the one who's able to give comfort to your soul, the one who's able to give comfort to those of us who believe through his word. And I pray that God may bless his word to all of our hearts today. We close with the words of a hymn together. It's the hymn number 570. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellence word. What more can we say than to you He has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. We'll stand as we sing this hymn through together. Think of the words as we sing. It has a theme which fits in with what we've been speaking about today. Let's stand as we sing. <laughs>